Neuropathways, a Cleveland Clinic podcast exploring the latest research discoveries and clinical advances in the fields of neurology, neurosurgery, neurorehab, and psychiatry. Advances in gene discovery are paving the way for the promising use of targeted gene therapy for neurologic disorders in both pediatric and adult patients. In today's episode of Neuropathways, we're discussing the advanced techniques being used by today's genomic researchers and the profound application they may have in treating the most common and rare neurological disorders. I'm your host, Glenn Stevens, neurologist, neuro-oncologist in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute. Uh, joining me for today's conversation is Dr. Dennis Lull. Dr. Lull is assistant professor and assistant staff in Cleveland Clinic's Genomic Medicine Institute and Neurological Institute. He's also a visiting scientist at the Broad Institute at Harvard and MIT in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and group leader at the University of Cologne in Germany. Dennis, welcome to Neuropathways. Thank you very much. My first question is going to be a broad one, and that is that when we look at the genome itself, it certainly uh, had a uh, remarkable accelerated course. Uh, I'm a neuro-oncologist, and I think uh, glioblastoma was one of the first uh, tumors that was characterized for the genome. But can you start off the stage for today's conversation by taking us through the last 10 to 15 years to what we know today about the genome itself? Yeah, thank you very much um, for um, inviting me today to speak. Very happy to talk a little bit about genetics and how it's affecting disease. So... I think there are a couple milestones how um, genetics yeah, improved over the last um, 15 to 20 years. First of all, in the early 2000s, that was the time where we fully characterized the human genome, where the great hope started to that. Um, now, we um, in 2000, around the 2000, we had the first complete human genome, and everyone was very um, hopeful to that we basically can solve all human genetic disorders or disorders where we thought genetic plays a role in the next 10 years, in the next decade. However, that didn't deliver, actually. So the next kind of revolution started more like 10 or 8 years ago when a new type of technology came um, to market, which um, was a new version of um, decoding the DNA through sequencing. So before, this was a very, very slow um, process. But in the technology improved significantly that you can decode one human's genome in roundabout um, a week of time. Whereas in 2000, it would take you like um, five to seven years of and roundabout uh, $30 billion to decode a single genome. But 10 years later, that can be done in a week. And this enabled then the clinical um, integration of you know, clinical sequencing, at least um, at the beginning for research and today for clinical screening. And with the massive in, um, integration of clinical sequencing, we learned a lot about genetic diseases. And today, um, in many Western societies and in many academic and even now also non-academic centers, um, clinical genetic testing is now routine. So the, the goal is to identify, obviously, the right genes and the right patients that would fit the therapy correctly. Where are we? in that? Uh, do we have some that we can do that with, or is this still in the future? What's the status? 
So this is quite uh, quite interesting. So when it comes to moving towards genetic or targeted therapy, there's typically um, a game plan. So the first part is identifying the causal gene. And this is at the end, um, not the gene, it's, it's more or less the mutation in that gene, which leads to the abnormal functioning of the gene in associated protein. And then typically um, what people do is they try to under identify the patient which really matches this defect because what happened is that people thought uh, that patients have version one of the disease and that this could be explained by um, genetics however what genetics told us is that version one of the disease can be explained by 10 different genes so there's more clinical um, heterogeneity which is correlated with genetic heterogeneity so once it's figured out which gene does which subtype of the disease, then people have also biomarkers like end, or clinical biomarkers like endpoints, and then people try to uh, develop therapies where you, for example, replace the gene by like a virus which brings in um, the healthy version of the disease into the body, or by improving the amount of the remaining healthy gene also through just some modifying uh, nucleotides like therapies. And this is, you know, what people try now. So there are remarkable advances um, which have been done for 10 to 20 examples in neuro for neurological disorders. These are typically rare disorders. But the beautiful thing is, if you look you now the last months to two years um, back in the literature and in, at conferences, almost, let's say, I don't know, one in five rare diseases, there are already examples where people can um, try to cure the disease in mice, and let's say one in 20 or 30 diseases, uh, diseases that can do it even. So this, it's the, the beauty about these genetic approaches are that the framework is the same, but you only exchange the gene which you want to target. So basically the vehicle, the approach of how this medicine works is similar and you can exchange it. That's this same underlying um, premise, what, for example, the mRNA vaccines have, which we use now to, um, you know, um, immunize ourselves against um, the coronavirus. In theory, the coding part or the specific corona part could be exchanged also for a different virus, right? So, and the same underlying premise and or the ideas also behind um, the targeted therapies um, for the neurological diseases. And that makes many, many, many people hopeful because if we look at the animal studies, um, which are way more ahead, um, obviously, than compared to human studies, you can see that you have a disease which and we know, for example, since 30, 40 years, which is devastating and is really disabling the person's lifelong and they even die early. And you, if you generate then a mouse model which has the same genetic disease, you um, inject twice or sometimes even once than this genetic therapy and the mice look from the outset at least even after two years that that they look cured with one injection so and that makes many 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 people help uh, really hopeful that this will translate to um to human success as well so how much of a complication is heterogeneity so um are you asking clinically or um genetic genetically one of the lessons we learned, and this is across the board and from cancer to neurological diseases, pediatric and adult, is that 
what we can clinically capture um, through our methods, which we um, use in routine care or even in advanced care, um, let's say looking at an MRI or an EEG or a PSG or whatever. We group people together where, which look molecularly on a genetically level not um, the same. So to us, they are the, the level of granularity which we can access with the technologies which we have in hand, they are frequently not able to capture the full-blown molecular heterogeneity. That means um, if you, for example, would, um, I can just give an example from epilepsy where we work. We can have a disorder which is called developmental epileptic encephalopathy, which is a severe pediatric brain disorder with associated with a lot of seizures, daily seizures, which cannot be treated with any form of therapy which we have available. And the children have severe interestability and many other um, diseases. For us, we were able to group them in clinically into 20 different groups and some disorders which don't really fit the bin. However, when we now look at the genes we have identified uh, which can cause these um, disorders, we found more than 120. So there are many, many parts of, let's say, of an engine, um, if you think about the car, which can break, which leads to the situation that the car is slowing down or is not driving at all. So, and if you want to precisely um, restore that, you need to identify what is wrong to make the engine work again. doesn't help if you uh, repair one part which is actually working, if the un underlying thing which is broken is not exchanged. So you mentioned a little bit about the work you're doing in epilepsy. I, I see that you've come up with something called a polygenic risk score in epilepsy. Can you talk about that a little bit and how that might help you in treating patients? There's a general rule in um, genetics and in disease. The more common the disease is, the less likely a single mutation can play a role. And the other way around, the more rare and typically devastating and early onset the disease is, the more likely a single variant can explain it all. So this is something what we have, um, which is called selection. So um, if you imagine you have a, a mutation which is totally devastating, that will not be passed on, right? Because you will never have the chance to have children yourself because it's already, um, as a child, it might be even lethal. However, if it's mild enough that you can have children, you might be disabled, but you can still have children, this can be passed on. So there's this um, general rule that common variants of mild effect leads to common disorders. However, these variants are considered as having really, really tiny effect. So, and this is what we basically observe for all common disorders, from um, Alzheimer's to or dementia, to Parkinson, to uh, diabetes, to common forms of cancer or risk to develop tumors and overall, to literally a di um, overweight, height. So everything what is uh, even traits, like um, risk, how taking, everything what makes us up as a human this is, as these have all genetic components, but um, they play a modest role. And what you can do is you can do very large studies where you um, look at, say, like in a million people and look at their BMI and look this and ask, hey, what is in the genome different between those people who have a high BMI compared to those who have a low BMI or people who have epilepsy versus who don't have epilepsy? And then what you will find is you will find between... 5,000 to 200,000 mutations, which you see in almost every 10th individual in the population. 
which you find a little bit more frequent in individuals which have a certain trait or disease, just a tiny bit. And these um, small variants, if you combine them, they um, add up and then you can use it as a score. And for example, what, this is what we did in epilepsy. We can, could identify 30,000 risk mutations, which individually have like a super tiny effect. However, if you ask then in a cohort um, or like on group level, a thousand people with epilepsy, how many of the 30,000 risk mutations for epilepsy do you have? You will observe that on average, they will have, let's say, 17,000. And then if you take, say, 10,000 people who don't have epilepsy and ask how many of these risk variants for epilepsy do you have, you might find only 13,000 uh, on average. So this is then considered as a higher polygenic risk, which confers you, gives you a higher chance to develop epilepsy. So and, and to make a long story short, so we can use now this score and look in an independent cohort. And what we see is that we can identify around about 1% of people, it's not many, who have a fourfold risk to develop epilepsy at birth. And the best example, um, you know, where this um, is almost clinically meaningful is Alzheimer's, where you can score someone's risk to develop Alzheimer or dementia, depending on what kind of score you use, with almost 90% accuracy at birth. So um, most of it is associated with the ApoE4 allele, but um, there's also like another like um, five percent risk um, which can be attributed to um, variants outside of the ApoE4 allele. The biggest question is, do you want to do this? Is it meaningful? Um, or are there examples for Alzheimer's that you know if you have lifestyle interventions such as learning a new language or being more mentally active, that this could protect you in certain situations? And there's a good example for stroke, for example, that if you have a better lifestyle in terms of nutrition and you lower your risk of um, having um, yeah, blood clogged, basically, then you also are at lower risk to develop stroke, even if you have a high genetic score. And there's a lot of research in that direction. I guess one question that comes up would be the cost of doing these types of tests. If you want to do a polygenic score for any kind of disease, you would have to make an invest. <laughs> if you would do it for research, you would have to pay $30. Then you have like around about 500,000 regions in the genome characterized. And there's some magic which can happen through um, statistics where you can make out of 500,000 re um, regions, 10 million. And um, with this, you can literally um, do a, a genetic risk score for all diseases. You can use just bioinformatics um, where you take the known risk variants and just ask to which degree an individual has them. So, so this literally would cost $30. It's, it's, it's very cheap, but it, at the end it has to be clear certified. So for clinical purposes and someone needs to um, make sure that the quality is good. And so it would be more expensive, but it's, it's not crazy expensive compared to an MRI, which can cost just like five to 7,000, right? So, but when it comes to sequencing, so when you are interested um, in a specific mutation in which um, it's harder to assay, um, then in research for research it would cost you six hundred dollars to do a, a whole genome but if you want to do it um, for clinical purposes and you need also an interpretation and these kind of things that can range up to like um to five thousand and it goes up depending on which level of quality you have to significantly more so if you have someone that has epilepsy and they have a polygenic risk score that's at a certain level uh, how does that help you clinically with the patients, or doesn't it? 
Yeah, so um, the polygenic risk scores um, for epilepsy, they are um, not established. So this is just purely research. And for most diseases, I think it changes a little bit for atherosclerosis and Alzheimer's. But yet these polygenic scores for the common types of disorders, that's purely research. So, But people are trying to implement them. However, when it comes to sequencing, where you look at these monogenic disorders, the single mutation, which makes it all, that can have, uh, for epilepsy as a good example, have um, game-changing um, care paths. For example, there are people who have mutations in the voltage-gated sodium channel. If they have mutations which lead to increased function in that same gene, then you use sodium channel blockers and the, chi um, the child um, has controlled seizures. Uh, however, if you have a mutation in that same gene and channel at a different position, um, then you might have loss of the channel function. So um, here you want to avoid sodium channel blockers because it makes it worse. And this is like in, an example where you, um, the gene alone is not, not enough information. You need to have the interpretation of the individual variant. And I think there are also very good examples in um, cancer space where the variant information is very, very important. I have a one wonderful example how genetics um, can help clinical care is um, a rare disorder, or it's a relatively rare disorder, where children have mild microcephaly, seizures, and um, sometimes also movement problems. And so they are pretty much um, pretty severely disabled um, after the second year of life. And uh, because they have mutations in the uh, glucose channel, and because this mutation leads to loss of the glucose channel function, or glucose transporter, However, if you give them ketogenic diet, because then it's a different kind of um, metabolic pathway, they're basically cured. So um, they develop normally. However, if you look clinically at um, the child, you would not be able um, to, just, um, to come up with the hypothesis that this child has the specific glucose transporter um, version of epilepsy, because it looks just like an epilepsy clinically. So you would need to do the genetic testing to um, come up with this hypothesis. So you mentioned some of the milestones that have been going on. Uh, what's the next frontier? What's the big thing coming next? So um, I think for the rare diseases, it's really making sure that um, the right patients receive the correct therapy. And this is um, learning about um, the full magnitude um, of genes which can lead to a disease, and while also learning for uh, learning the clinical correlates, which give you more confidence that the gene where you found the mutation is truly the reason for the disease, so that you have also clinical validation, um, and that's very very important. So hopefully, then enrolling the right patients and having the right dosages of the um, targeted therapies, that they will be successful. When it comes to the more common disorders. We are still behind. Um, let's say if we talk about Alzheimer's, Parkinson, or other, then it's a new degeneration, or even common forms of epilepsy. Because here, um, the genetic architecture is a little bit more complicated. Many, many, many mutations play a role. And also, um, the environment plays a role. And typically, what we do is we only look at the patients once they have the full-blown disease. And for later-onset diseases, that might be too late. So understanding the biology, which is really at the beginning of the disease, before it's clinically recognizable, understanding that one uh, is probably the most important step that we can identify disease-modifying therapies 
that really help um, and not just act on a brain, for example, which is already half gone. Yeah, it would seem like you'd have to intervene with a lot of the diseases very early on. Yeah, correct. So I, I think for the um, pediatric diseases, you naturally do this. It's a developing brain. And um, if you don't meet a specific milestone, that is very fast recognized. However, if someone um, has mild memory problems or is not anymore uh, on the top level w what they once were, I think that's, it's not so easy to recognize because aging um, is you know, also a process which uh, happens once you're older. And typically, you know, as, as I mentioned before, people only really do all the deep biomarkers, such an MRI, such as some movement um, test, once the disease is really obvious to everyone, and then they go to the clinic. And that might be time point in time which are rather late to intervene effectively. Good. So other areas that we need to talk about? Anything that you want to really discuss that we've missed? I'm hopeful and uh, very happy that we soon will have the Cleveland Clinic Brain Study, which is, you know, one of the first and probably the biggest prospective study to study um, human brain disorders, where we exactly try to um, identify these um, biological changes that cure in the aging population prior to disease onset. So I understand that uh, there's a large uh, clinical trial that you're going to be starting, a brain study looking at neurodegenerative disorders. Would you like to discuss that for us a little bit? Yeah, thank you. So one of the biggest challenges is that we see most patients coming to the clinic when they, when they already have developed the disease. And there's a big hypothesis in the community that when a patient has already a clinically recognizable disease, then this is just the end of a long journey um, where the disease has developed. And at that point, it's not reversible anymore. And the hypothesis is that, for example, someone who develops Alzheimer's by the age of 60 may already have recognizable changes in their biology by the age of 40 or have some, for example, sleep problems or something else which you may not intuitively would associate with an ERM as the first marker for the disease. But in, in theory, if you would be able to identify that someone is having the mildest version of the disease already 20 years ago, you may use the drugs which are out there today to not treat the disease, but really um, modify it to a degree that the person will never develop the severe disease. And that's why we started here at the Cleveland Clinic, the so-called Cleveland Clinic Brain Study, where we look at people with multiple sclerosis and healthy individuals, um, just without any additional criteria, that don't have a neurological disease over the age of 50 and monitor them every year and very detailed for more than 30 assessments, most of them um, assessing the brain from neuropsychological testing to MRI to EEG to PSG, but even something like an echocardiogram. So, and they, they get a, a genome and the transcriptome and so forth, so, and so on and so forth. So where we really, really monitor them every year um, in a standardized way with technologies from the world's experts. And then we follow them um, over time and then observe who developed, for example, stroke and who will develop, for example, Alzheimer's. And once we have done this, we can then look back in the data and ask, for those who develop 10 years later Alzheimer's, 
how did their biomarker or clinical profile look like 10 years ago? Maybe that will give us some clues of the earliest risk factor or clinical recognizable markers for the disease. And we can even look in the molecular biomarkers and see if there maybe are some pathways which are dysregulated, which might be um, drug targets. And how many patients are you going to look at for the uh, brain study? Yeah, so this is still something which is in development. So we're very fortunate. We got more excitement than we expected um, at the beginning. So we will start with a few thousand and um, the study is it's open-ended. So we go for 10 years now, but it may go longer and we might. Um, and it's, it seems even at this point, even likely that we will enroll significant more people. Anything else you want to talk about that we haven't discussed? No, but um, maybe maybe um, maybe you have some thoughts on um, gene therapy from the glioblastoma um, field. So you know, uh, I'm a neurooncologist, and uh, the most common primary malignant tumor of adults is the glioblastoma, that has a very high mutation rate. And historically, you know, we've looked at blocking different pathways, and of course, the tumor finds a different pathway to get down to grow and divide. Uh, there's been a number of genetic studies looking at putting retroviruses uh, to try and treat tumor. Are you involved with any uh, brain tumor treatment genetically? Not, not at all in terms of treatment. So what we are doing is we, we have a study here at the clinic and also some with collaborators where we look at low-grade pediatric brain tumors such as gangliomas and astrocytomas and DNets and where we just do the genome uh, or we just do the genome sequencing. And we we all, we see quite a bit the BRAF, uh, MAPK variants, but we don't we are not involved in any kind of treatment. But one thing what is quite interesting is, um, in the gangliomas, it's uh, it's expected that 50% of them will have the BRAF B600E variant. And the interesting thing what we saw in our data actually is that we see the 50%, but we see among those people uh, 50% that many of them have large structural variations, but not all. And we are looking now complete architecture of the um, genetics, um, not only the, the, the individual point mutation, but also the other rearrangements that have any clinical implications, but it's not therapeutic at this point. Interesting. We will see uh, on occasion BRAF mutations in glioblastoma, but it's not very common. But it does give us a targetable uh, mutation to treat. So, Dr. Lal, uh, you know, we have the benefit here at the Cleveland Clinic of having a genomics institute, but there may be a lot of physicians out there that don't have easy access. Uh, if I'm seeing patients with neurodegenerative risk and I'd like to have some involvement, how would I go about doing that if I don't have it at my hospital? This is not um, an, a question which is easy to answer. So overall, um, in one of the fastest growing and most demanded um, areas of medicine is genetics. Um, and in particular, there's this relatively new type of position, which is called the genetic counselor. Um, this is an individual which is specialized typically on the, the disease type and the genetics of this disorder. And they are really trained in communicating genetic findings to patients. And they work together with a geneticist um, or clinical geneticist. And um, that is probably the best way moving forward. However, when I say this, I'm giving um, at international meetings, at the Cleveland Clinic, but also outside, a lot of training workshops for neurologists. And one thing what I really have to stress, and that's, my, that's my personal opinion, but um, it's just experience what I observe, is 
that for many types of diseases, genetics is a really fast growing field because it can explain a significant amount of patients and it's growing. If you work um, as a treating physician in an area where this is an, where you make the same observation that genetics be, seems to become more and more important, I really, really, really encourage you to um, not hope that the genetic counselor or so be able to um, guide you in terms of treatment because that will not happen. The genetic counselor um, or the geneticist, they will only be there to make sure that the variant is pathogenic or not. However, what kind of treatment would fit that patient um, based on the genetic etiology, that will be the decision of the clinician. And also clinical treatment in genetics is very close to research. So many of the drugs or care pathways are, are a little bit more exploratory. And to have a good intuition and um, gut feeling to if a patient would um, fit a certain um, drug and where uh, also where also a certain skepticism um, is important, this is only possible if you um, familiarize yourself with um, genetics. So for those where which have to look at the genetic test results, you know, and this happens for many, especially in neurological domains, I would really, really encourage um, yourself to re-educate yourself because what we learned even four years ago is old school compared to what we know today in the field of genetics, which is a really rapid evolving field. And I know it's, it's really demanding to keep up the patients, even almost impossible if you could take care about patients, but there might be people in your department to talk to. And um, I would just try to stay open-minded and try to um, keep up with the information and um, also reach out to people who know um, or have more experience. And um, then, uh, then because you will be able to do, you will be able to better care for your patient with um, all this new knowledge which is available. I will just uh, echo what you just uh, stated, and that is that within the cancer center, we do have genomic boards where patients will have molecular testing, and that will be discussed at a molecular board so that there are individuals that have better understanding than others uh, to help guide treatment options for patients, which is uh, very helpful. So, Dennis, uh, I'm looking forward uh, to the future of gene therapy. It sounds very exciting, and it sounds like if I go to sleep, there'll be something new tomorrow. Uh, looking forward to the hope that we all believe that it will bring us for ourselves and for our patients, and I'd like to thank you for joining me today. Thank you very much. This concludes this episode of Neuropathways. You can find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash neuropodcast, or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from experts in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute on our ConsultQD website. That's consultqd.clevelandclinic.org slash neuro or follow us on Twitter at CLEClinicMD, all one word. And thank you for listening.